Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ, culture, and the church. This is Stephen Vaughn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Mansfield and Morgan McClure, and we are excited to be with you today. In this episode, we will discuss what informs our faith and specifically how this relates to the way that we worship. You know, guys, what informs our faith conforms our worship. This is part one of a three-part mini-series, so we hope that you will join us for the full conversation in the episodes ahead. So guys, today we're talking about informants of our faith and uh, specifically how our faith and what we believe relates to the way we worship, right? And um, just kind of while we're getting started here, we wanted to start off by discussing different expressions of worship. So maybe maybe describe to us a um, an expression of worship that is not kind of your expression of worship, but one that you've experienced or one that you've seen mm. um, as you maybe have visited a different church or a different culture or whatever. And just so we can kind of start this discussion on worship. Yeah, well... Um... I think the first time I was at a Liberty Convocation was really when I got to see kind of the entire spectrum of worship Um, because when like Liberty students, they come from all sorts of faith backgrounds. And that was like the first time I actually saw people like dancing in worship. Like they were just going at it. And that, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church my whole life. So that was totally (laughs) straight. Uh, That that was not me. I was watching people dance, but I was like, oh. What's going on? But it was really cool. Um, And it just really grew me a lot because it just was so different than what I was used to. Sure. Yeah. I think about uh, being on mission trips and like I go back in my mind to a year ago when we were in Uganda. And uh, I just think about the expression of worship there that was so lively and exuberant that I, I feel like I had never experienced a, a part of something like that, how how dynamic it was in the sense of, you know, not a lot of instrumentation and not even, you know, scripted in the sense of, you know, a music book or lyrics yet. It was so dynamic in the expression of worship. And that, that really just, it, it really touched me in that way. Yeah, I'll never forget growing up, um, my dad was an evangelist, so we would travel to different types of churches every week. And I'll never forget like the difference. So you've seen a lot uh, in, in yeah, that aspect. Yeah, on of like it, a yeah. weekly basis then. I remember as a kid, like we would go to some churches and it was just like, what is happening right now? You know, because it wasn't what I was accustomed to. But then you go to other churches and it was just like, oh, okay. But the difference even between cultures of just mm-hmm. like North and South in America, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was it was common and it wasn't every church in the North, but it was common in the North that it was a little bit more reserved, proper, maybe a little bit more liturgical, you know, in their worship and uh, organized. And then in the South, it's not always true, but like in a lot of the churches we would go to, they would be a little bit more free flowing in their worship. Uh, You might hear a lot more people say amen or raise their hand, you know, and it's not that that's always how it is, but it was like a difference that you would see. But what was cool is the older that I got was you could see that these different expressions of worship were both beautiful in their sense and in those cultures and how they right. related to yeah. it, you know? I think you even look across, you know, broad evangelicalism and even the different denominations and how, you know, by and large, um, worship is expressed differently uh, in, in different denominations, even in different parts of the country. And and, I, and I, as I've kind of thought about it this week, like no one has the corner of the market as it is in, in terms of, you know, the style of worship or, or the appropriateness or the... I guess the what's what's right in the sense of expression, but yet you look at different all across the spectrum, you know, uh, of how people have expressed themselves in worship, and I think it, it it should teach us something outside of our own experience. Yeah, no, completely agree. So since we're talking about worship, we should probably go ahead and do some groundwork here, just in case some of our listeners aren't on the same page with what we're talking about. So what is worship? Um, We kind of want to define worship and what it is. So um, does one of you want to kind of give us a little bit of insight there on what is worship? Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say you go go for it. When I I think about worship, I, I think about ascribing to God worth and uh, praise for who he is. And so, you know, when we think about magnifying God or glorifying uh, God, it's, it's this idea of ascribing to him 
his worth because he's worthy of it. You know, he's, he's worthy of our worship, our praise, our devotion. And so, um, in, in a snapshot, that's kind of what comes to my mind. Yeah. I remember when I was, uh, in like high school, I think, and we would go to a camp and I remember this camp, which I cannot remember his name to save the life of me, but he would always get up and he would say, worship is worthship, you know? And um, it's this idea of giving God worth it's worthship. And, um, mm-hmm. Psalm 29, I think guys, is just a beautiful, um, beautiful Psalm when you're talking about worship. And I'm just going to read a couple of the verses, not going to go through the whole thing, but it says in verse one of Psalm 29, it says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, Mm. ascribe to the Lord, the glory that's due his name, worship the Lord and the splendor of holiness. Mm. And it just paints this picture of someone who is worshiping the Lord, who is holy Right. And they're holy, right, by by uh, what the Lord has done for us. But it's this worshiping God and giving him, I love what it says, what's due his name. Yeah. It's not, it's not something that we are just giving to God just because, but no, it's because he is worthy. He is due that. Um, we owe him that. And so this idea of worship as worship. And uh, worship is an expression of my faith, I believe. I believe worship is an overflow of what's going on in my heart. So what do I believe about God? And what I believe about God is going to overflow in my expression of worship. Yeah. And so we kind of come to this, uh, this question here, is worship singing? You know, like I think sometimes in our modern Christian culture, we always say, well, the worship band or the worship yeah. songs or, or the worship or, time. Or like they led us in worship. They led right. us in worship. So we think, oh, well, what do they lead you? And they lead you in, they, they led you in singing. In the worship center. And, and so like yeah. all of these things have worship. So is worship just singing or is there more to worship, um, public worship um, specifically? Yeah, I think it, you know, it goes so much deeper than just singing because when we worship, we're connecting like body, mind, and spirit, holy, you know, recognizing who we are, but who God is. And, you know, especially as Christians who our relationship, you know, to God is. And so it's when you're just singing, then that's hardly worship because if you're just saying words. It's an aspect of our worship. It is. um, But it's, it's not the only thing that defines what worship is. As I think about defining worship, I I, I really appreciate uh, Ligon Duncan and what he says about kind of Mm -hmm. biblically directed worship. Which, by the way, earlier you mentioned the broad spectrum of evangelicalism. He would not be exactly where we might be on some things. Um, He would be of a different denomination, but I love that his expression of worship and his definition of worship is still so beautiful and so applicable. It kind of goes back to your point of the beauty of the different types of worship that are expressed. Right, because he he roots it all in Scripture. And so Mm -hmm. he he, he really talks about how public worship will include these things. It will include the reading of Scripture, uh, the preaching of Scripture, uh, praying the Bible, singing the Bible, and seeing the Bible. And when he says seeing the Bible, he's talking about uh, communion and baptism, the really the ordinances of the church that that are visible, that are that are pictures that you see. And so when when I hear that, I, I hear then okay, well then our worship service in, includes all of those aspects: the preaching of God's word, the reading of God's word, um, singing God's word, and 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 seeing. God's word, it, the the Bible, the Scripture, in, in as we as people are baptized and as they observe the Lord and uh, as they observe communion, and so all of those things are expressions of what worship is, and it's not defined by any one of those things, but it's really collectively all of those things together. Yeah, and I, I love the centrality of Scripture in His definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves sure, here, right? Sure, yeah, but just so you know, right up front, um, the Bible is central to Christian worship. And that is what we believe. And that's uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about over here over the next couple episodes. So what informs my worship then, right? We have a decent, I think, picture working definition here of worship. And so what informs my worship? And here's kind of where we're going to be going over the next three episodes, right? So here's a little sneak peek of the next uh, next couple episodes and where we're going. Uh, what informs my worship? And we're going to be looking at what I feel, what I see, 
and what I think. And these different, um, these different inlets here kind of, of how things work together. And so what I feel uh, we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about this idea of emotion. And, um, and how does emotion play into worship? And how does it what play is... into worship? And then also um, some of maybe where it, it can go wrong, right? Like emotionalism. Sure. Some of the extremes. The dependence upon emotion. Yeah. And then we're also going to talk about uh, what I see. Uh, that's going to be our third uh, part of this uh, mini series, and what I see is this idea of experience, and uh, the the extreme here would be some type of traditionalism, right? Where tradition is king, and my experience is king. So what I see, what I experience, that is my reality, right? And uh, then what I think, and uh, that that simply goes back to this more of a rationalistic, uh, intellectual approach where knowledge and uh, logic outweigh anything and this idea where where um i must be able to rationalize i must be able to explain in order to every part of my faith Mm -hmm. and and it's to the exclusion sometimes of of true experience of of, um so we'll we'll get into all that i guess on this episode today yeah we're going to get into a lot of it and uh you need to stick with us too for the whole part of the mini series and because it all it all connects together it will and i'm really excited about it i'm really really excited about this so the way i worship is an indicator of who I believe God is. We're going to go back to that. We stated that there at the very beginning, kind of, but this is kind of where we're going to be going over the next um, couple of episodes here. So the way I worship is an indicator of who I believe God is. So um, let, let's talk then a little bit here about emotions and emotionalism and how that plays into worship. Morgan? Okay. Yeah, so right. Let's first take a look at, you know, some of the scientific you know, discussions on what emotions are, since it's so so central to our discussion today. But would you believe it that even scientists don't have a clear definition of what our emotions are or what their function is in our mm, life? I do and believe that. <laughs> it, it, it was quite fascinating. I mean, I tell you, I went through so many articles researching this, and I did not come to one complete a conclusive consensus. Consensus. It huh? was crazy, Surprising. but I did. I and th- this one article on the Atlantic uh, was very helpful because they expressed that, and um, <laughs> there was a quote in there. Um, from a professor, and he said, the only thing certain in the emotion field is that no one agrees on how to define emotion. Um, hmm. But they they did have some, like people look at it from different angles, from a very biological angle um, and an evolutionary aspect, especially people, you know, that are deeply based in the scientific community and not so much the faith community. Um, but also people look at it from a poetic sort of holistic experience. And one of my favorite de- definitions of emotion that I found that I just I think it colors it the right way, is the description of intangible human feelings in the powerful internal sensations that color every experience. Mm. So I thought that was, you know, deeply philosophical, but, you know, it kind of, it, it, and even that definition evokes emotion, you know what I mean? Right, right. So um, philosophically, it's arguable that experience is not anything intrinsically measurable. This was that um, professor, uh, Alan Friedland, who was an associate professor at the University of California, who is, um, you know, uh, he's deeply in brain science and phil psychological studies i will get that out um (laughs) but you know it's it's this uh this idea that it's something so intrinsic to who we are as human beings but human beings but it's very difficult to measure Uh, one scientist kind of got it right um his name is yak panskip why why do you think that is i mean just to say that why do you think it is hard to measure emotion well so whenever I'm working with teenagers, right, like I work with youth, that's one of my main roles here at the church. And uh, whenever we're talking about emotions, we always um, say that you can't depend on your emotions a ton because they're constantly changing, right? And especially at that young age, right, where it's like up and down every day. But I wonder sometimes if because those scientists are emotional, <laughs> if it's hard to define emotion because emotions change. And so they're so changing I think of it that they're hard so to subjective. measure. It is. It's mm-hmm. so subjective. And so changing. if it's so subjective personally, 
Mm-hmm. How right. do we? How do we? And and they did. They've done this study repeated many times across many cultures, where people would look at photographs of of faces, and they would you know tell the person to identify a certain emotion. And even across cultures, there are things that are universal, but also things that you know we identify differently. Different responses. Yeah. yeah. And so it was very very interesting. But I did want to bring up one um, study that I found was helpful to kind of categorize emotions, and this was done by Dr. Yak Pansky. Um, <laughs> we'll just say That's that I said name. that right. That's a great name. Um, and he really—it's it, so interesting. But he s- focused more on how emotions are displayed in animals, and kind of cross-compared that to humans. Huh. Huh. So, um, but he—he he was able to categorize it into seven, you know, different categories, which were seeking emotions, rage, fear, lust, care grief and play so Mm. all of the emotions that we experience can somewhat and and once again this is only one perspective out of a plethora but he you know was able to categorize all these things but really it comes out of filling human need that was the main point of his research is all of these emotions are based out of a need or a response to something that happens to us um and they are biological but they're also you know what so what involuntary and it's it's a constant argument of whether or not our body causes these or if our mind does it first in response to something. So okay. very fascinating. Um, don't know if that was clarifying at all, uh, but it's... Well, I think it's helpful. And I think it also shows that, you know, emotion is so subjective because mm-hmm. even, even if the scientific community struggles to be able to articulate what classifies emotion and how that how it completely relates and works, it, it should show us, I think, um, how emotion is subjective. And as mm-hmm. we think about, okay, then how is my faith informed? Uh, I think automatically it should show us, hey, there's there's a there's a red flag here. There's a concern that we need yeah. to be, be, be on alert for. Yeah. So um, that's kind of a little bring up to speed description of emotions. But can we like transition now a little bit from what is emotion to does emotion have a place in worship? So we're talking about informants of our faith okay. and does emotion work out of our faith and into worship all at all? Will we feel in worship, I guess, is the a good way to ask that question. Yeah. And I would say that the answer is definitely yes, because, you know, worship is an experience, an experience with your mind and an experience with your body. And um, I think it's okay to feel in worship. And I grabbed a quote from Bob Coughlin. He's the director of Sovereign Grace Music. And he said that we must acknowledge that emotional engagement with God in worship is not an issue of temperament, but obedience to his word. Half-hearted worship is no worship at all. So that's, I mean, that's a pretty weighty statement to make, you know, Mm -hmm. if you aren't feeling something when you're worshiping, you know, the God of all heaven and earth and the God of our salvation, then maybe, maybe there's a disconnect somewhere. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's, re- that's really good. I, I, I would agree with you completely. I think we do feel in, um, worship and, and I, I love to the idea here that it's not just that we can feel in worship, but, um, you wrote down here uh, a note that I love. It says it's more than acceptable that we do feel in worship. You know, it's not that we just can, but it should be an accepted fact that feeling and worship can go together. Right. It's because when we fully engage our heart and soul and mind in who we're worshiping and why, then it's just natural that our emotions should follow suit. But it's like what you said, Aaron. Um, Bob Coughlin also said that, you know, it's obvious that not everyone is going to react in the same way at any certain point in time in worship, depending on the song or depending on the subject of, you know, what particular aspect of worship you're looking at. It's going to be a broad spectrum. Sure. Yeah. So as we're rounding out some of this on emotions and some of this kind of groundwork for uh, what we're talking about, um, are feelings facts? Absolutely mm. not. We always say we always say with the youth, we say your feelings ain't facts. Feelings ain't facts. <laughs> feelings ain't facts. Well, I one hundred percent agree. And feelings this is so important to understand that feelings are not arbiters of truth, hmm. but they're just indicators and mere messengers. Huh, that's good. Truth. That's really good. That's really good. Um, I have a good friend, um, one of my very best friends, and she's a mentor of mine. She said, she always said this to me when I was having a really difficult time reckoning my feelings with what I was experiencing and what I knew to be true. She said, feelings make good servants, but they are terrible masters. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, you know, that's even a biblical truth to live by, you know? Right. <laughs> Right. Because I think uh, I always think of Jeremiah 17 when he says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Right. You it's know? like this desperately sick heart that you 
often want to trust what mm-hmm. you feel, but you realize that your heart is deceptive and deceitful. And so, you know, even in moments where I've found this to be true in my life, often when I hear about a a circumstance or something, my first response often is not the right response. Mm. And because that's kind of our, our, our sin nature at play and how we, you know, we hear, we hear something. And so we want to lash out or we want to respond to it in a certain way. But oftentimes our emotions are, are really terrible uh, in the sense of, of guiding us into what is truth. Yeah. 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 And even the, even the Psalms, you know, like, I just think it's one more example of this. David, you know, he experienced, he shows the full spectrum of emotion from anger to despair to utter joy. You and know? I think that's why we love the Psalms. Yeah. I think we, we read the Psalmist and we say, man, I identify with this because mm-hmm. yeah. I, you know, I read it and I think, man, that that's speaking into, because we've all been on that spectrum of emotion. We've yeah. all been completely downcast or we've been exuberant about something or we've, you know, even as David, like, you know, impeccatorily praise, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. God's judgment. And we think, well, that's never right. But yet... But yet we 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 understand we we identify with how he feels, and even like when when his emotions conflict with what he knows to be true, he always brings it around to the truth of God, and that's what I think is such an he's exemplary in that sense. Um, even when he's at the pit of his despair, he says, "I know I can hope in God because mm-hmm. He's where my salvation will come from." Yeah, why are you cast down on my soul? Mm-hmm. And then he's just like. Uh, but I will hope in God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love the Psalms. That's a beautiful thing. So yeah. So as we're talking about emotions, we're kind of going to continue on in our discussion here, right? If, of emotion as an informant of my faith. And we're going to kind of take an historical look at it now. So um, some evidence of maybe where people have allowed emotion, emotionalism. In the church. We're going to talk about that in, in the church. In Christianity, yeah. how it's affected their worship. And maybe we're going to get to some extremisms of it. And then we're going to wrap it up, right? But um, there's a common question of, is revivalism and emotionalism, the same thing, right? The idea that you can have a revival, right? That word um, that gets thrown around and tossed around like candy, it seems like in <laughs> Christian circles. But is that the same thing as emotionalism? And I've, I've heard well-meaning, well-meaning Christians say yes, but I would highly disagree with that. Um, when you look in scripture, you see that revival is an idea that God can renew the spirit of his people when they align themselves with his will. And to say that revivalism or revivals, um, the act of renewing, this act of drawing close to God and seeing him work in my life in a personal way, to say that that is merely emotion is, I believe, to discount the working hand of God in our lives. Um, I think of Psalm 51. Uh, and how David had gotten to a point in his relationship with the Lord that was not good. And uh, he had gone away from God. He had gone after sin, after Bathsheba. And he's he's feeling the effects of his sin in a great way. He talks about how his bones ache in that uh, passage, you know. But he asks, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Uh, purge me with hyssop and this idea. And then at the very end, he says, restore to me this joy of your salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. This call for renewal and restoration. And um, I do believe that revival is different than emotionalism. Would, would Would you agree with that? I would think that I would I would echo what you're saying. I think though when people say that I don't think it's unfounded because I think you look back in probably the last 60 70 years of of church history in America and and in large respect um you can look to a lot of instances where where revivals or that type of, you know, yeah. gospel campaign was was maybe motivated by emotion. Uh, not really by uh, maybe a response to truth. And so... Which is fair. There and are we're going to look at two of yeah. those today. Right, yeah. We're going to look at two here in just a second. Yeah. But just before we did that, I wanted to make sure that we laid a groundwork to say that we're not attacking God's working hand. We're not sure. saying that God does not revive. We're not saying that God does not send revival to his people or that he doesn't restore or renew them. What we are going to do is, though, we are going to talk about maybe two instances where that may be got taken a little farther than it should have or could have, right? And so just in order to just wanted to lay that as a I, I think foundation. I think what we should clarify here is when we think about revival and and as we think about, you know, revival meetings and things like that, it's this it's this desire that a prayed for, sought after desire that God would renew his people and quicken the hearts of his people. I think of what David prays and um but yet as we think about that, what what often 
sometimes maybe gets lost in the discussion is that, or as we think about it, is that revival is a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Re- God's work of reviving is, is individual. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes maybe what we will see as extremes or maybe as you're saying negative examples of that are, are sometimes things where maybe it's somebody had a personal experience and yet that that experience became normative mm-hmm. for everybody else. Yeah. And, and, um, and that's what maybe we yeah, just talked through it, that. Guarding against making my personal public or everybody, right? Um, the beauty of sharing in personal experience is a beauty of God's working in his church, right? Right. But it's not making, um, not making what is descriptive prescriptive, sure. right? Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> so, true. Um, but no, so we wanted to talk about two instances where this kind of founded movements out of these two instances, um, the Topeka revival and the Azusa street revival. Now the Azusa street revival is uh, pretty popular actually. In fact, if you type it in, you're going to get a lot of I'd, info I'd say some people have probably on your heard computer. Of that. Um, yeah. well, in fact, much of, um, a denomination of Pentecostalism and charismatic denominations would take much of their roots back to the Azusa Street Revival in part. And uh, they would view that as a very, very important piece of that. But um, many times the Topeka Revival gets left out. And so when I was studying up on this, I, I, I'd heard of the Azusa Street Revival. So I was like, let's check out the Azusa Street Revival. So I was reading up on it. But um, the central figures here uh, of the Azusa Street Revival was a, was a guy named William J. Seymour. And he was an African-American preacher in the early 1900s. But what often gets left out is that um, Mr. Seymour, he had studied under a guy named Charles Parham in yeah. Topeka. And this guy had uh, seen a revival, um, so to speak, what he would describe as a revival. And they had a Bible training school there in Topeka. And uh, in Topeka, it was about 1901 when some of these, um, what they would describe as acts of God happened. And in his Bible school, right before that, uh, Parham had instructed his students to search God's word to see where God worked and why. And so they obviously came upon the book of Acts. And so they interpreted Acts when it says the baptism of the spirit, right? They would interpret that in order to be baptized by the spirit, you had to speak in tongues. And so all of a sudden, this idea of speaking in tongues becomes super um, popular here in Topeka. And it's this idea that if you've been baptized by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit's power in your life, you will speak in tongues. And so it was like this descriptive became prescriptive, right? Mm-hmm. And um, this all is happening in Topeka and Seymour is studying there. And um, it's very interesting story, actually, if you study it, even, even the cultural, um, the culture of what's going on and the, just some of the background of this is just a very, very interesting story. But so, um, Seymour is studying there and then he gets called out to Los Angeles to, um, to this mission. Um, and he is pastoring out there and in around 1906, their own version of a revival started to happen. And at the Azusa Street. At the Azusa Street. Exactly. And um, people came from all over the world. And in fact, until I had started reading about this, I didn't know just how big of a deal, um, so to speak, this was. But this was a pretty like big deal. Specifically in, in Pentecostal movements and in, 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 in almost Pentecostal like a, tradition. Almost like a birthplace, right? In yeah. fact, when you yeah. started reading about it, it was like the Topeka revival was almost like a birthplace to Pentecostalism for the America. Yeah, Azusa was. Street was a birthplace for Pentecostalism globally. Huh. And it was this idea because at, from Azusa Street, it was saying thousands of people were sent out as missionaries, right? And so they would take this. But um, Seymour began to preach there, and he continued to preach what he had preached back when he learned in Topeka, right? And it was interesting because Seymour started out there at Azusa Street, and he differed from his predecessor because his predecessor believed in racial division. But Seymour bridged the gap and he sought to bridge the gap in the early days of his ministry. Now, there were some differences later on in the later part of his ministry, but in the early days of his ministry, he actually believed in racial unity. And so he tried to unite under one roof for one cause um, the different cultures that were at play there in the early 1900s, which early 1900s, that's a 
kind of a foreign concept, right? Yeah, huh. huge. And um, Parham comes out and gets a little ticked, <laughs> right, so to speak. And so to make a long story short, they split and they start going their different ways and doing different things. But when you look at these stories from these times, you hear all of these stories of like speaking tongues, this healing, this this. Uh, one guy said it was like a presence came over you as soon as you entered the building, right? And it's this idea of a sight and feeling-based description of how God works. And while I do not doubt that good things happen because of these two revivals, right? I, I don't think that I would broad brush and say that nothing good happened here, right? I think that that would be a dangerous statement to make, especially when you read through some of the stuff that happened. Uh, good things happen, but I do believe it was at the cost of some theological flaws. Because I believe that from these two massive events... Uh, in the early 1900s came a new expectation of signs and wonders accompanying the term of revival and accompanying this, this idea of when you are baptized by the spirit, when you have the spirit's power in your life, when you are, if you want to say saved, uh, you will speak in tongues. And so it's this idea that almost feelings and sight start to usurp faith and the word of God. And it's it's kind of this um, precedent that would build and um, in momentum over the coming years, and it would just continue on building and building and building. Yeah, what, regardless of what happened at the experience there at the revival, what came out of it was mm-hmm. really a bad theology mm-hmm. that has has swept across you know America. Because I think you can look then and see maybe the the situation that we're in in America today. And I think the, the 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 evangelical landscape of America can probably be largely traced back to bad theology coming out of what was happening in that revival meeting, because because from there what we see is the charismatic movement uh, becoming so mainstream in in society over the last hundred years. Yes, which yeah. is different than the Pentecostal movement to some degree. It is. It is degree. because it's not it's not it's not tied to. Um, a denomination, right? Because when mm-hmm. we think about the charismatic movement and how the charismatic movement has has grown out of denominations, it's no longer been contained within a, you know, so what you see happening, I think you just look at on the landscape of America today and you say, okay, well, what's going on with, you know, all of these, it just, you, you look at the landscape of the mess that the church is in in America and then you're like, Okay, well, where did all of this come from? How did how did this thinking so infiltrate the church in terms of superficial worship and the elevation of personality and mm-hmm. all of these type of things? And I think you can go back and you can look at the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 and say, man, the ramifications of what took place in there, because what you said, so many people came to that meeting. And then from that movement, people were sent out around America, around the world. I was reading um, crazy numbers. Yeah, there was. And a, it's, yeah. it's hard because it was so early to get like a definitive stat. Right. I, I read one stat that was like, I believe it was like 600,000 people Holy that were God. affected over the time. Cause it wasn't just a, like a month long thing. It was like a couple of years right. yeah. and, um, but like crazy numbers. We'll see. But then what happened was, was that prior to probably the 1950s, I would say um, the mainstream, mainstream evangelical churches did not embrace uh, Pentecostalism. It wasn't embraced. It wasn't uh, that that. And so, what happens though? Then, in the 1950s, also out in California, was an Episcopal minister in uh, Van Nuys, California, named Dennis Bennett. And some people may know that name. Who here's he's an Episcopal minister, and he then what was so notable about his experience is that he also received this second baptism of the Spirit and of gifts. And so, what kind of notably happened in that instance was. What was contained in Pentecostal tradition, in a sense, kind of leaped out uh, denominations now into the and now into the Episcopal uh, Church, and it was such a it was such a um, it was such a um, trying to think of the right word. It, it was it, the, the shockwave of that yeah. in the Episcopal Church was so dynamic because there was this instantly this kind of upheaval of of okay, well then this is what we've always believed this is the tradition we've always affirmed the truth and in, in the pentecostal in the episcopal church 
And so what happens that in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s is that the charismatic movement begins to be embraced by a number of denominations. So we see Baptist and Lutheran and Methodist and most notably non-denominational churches embracing this type of bad theology, and it even goes across uh, the sea. I mean, Europe experiences a lot of this in the 1970s, and so um, what happened was the Pentecostal, really the charismatic movement in America began to demand such acceptance in mainstream evangelical churches that before long, uh, churches bought into that bad theology, and it was no longer isolated in a Pentecostal tradition. Now it, that type of bad theology was embraced by a number of different type of denominations. And so then you look at it, okay, in the mainstream evangelical church today, and what do you discover? That the charismatic movement in large respect is the face of American evangelical Christianity. It's, it's I would say, primarily uh, the TV preaching that you hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. It's primarily what you hear on radio. And, and, and sadly, it's often what's sold in Christian bookstores. But, yeah. but this is kind of where we're heading. Why is that? Well, there's a danger in the... I think it's a bad theology. And well, I think... Yeah, but why is it played everywhere? Why is it sold everywhere? Because it feels... It feeds your good. emotion. It feels good. Yeah. It makes me feel good, and it feeds into what I want to feel. What it what it did is it began to elevate human experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of this danger of this um, experiential theology that promises to people what it really can't deliver. Yeah. And so whether it's... Um, signs and wonders or the gift of tongues or healing or even an aspect of prosperity gospel, I think you can trace through all this and to see that it promises people what it can't deliver. And so what ends up happening is God gets blamed because it it when when it doesn't happen, right? And so yeah. you just I mean just think about just think about the the mainstream evangelical church today and and think about the the despair that people have in God, the the rejection that people have in God. And I think you can look in their life and they probably had an experience somewhere in their life when they heard this type of bad theology and expected God to do something mm-hmm. that God never promised to do. Like right. and so what ends up happening is it's it's hurt people's confidence in the Lord when it should have never really in actual fact they've they've they put their confidence in really a false God they've put it into yeah. uh really an aspect of God's character that that do you see that played out in scripture at different points sure but 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 they've made what uh was maybe limited in experiences or in different time to be completely normative yeah. and so we so we, now we we take that bad theology and now we've tended uh, to be, I think, drifted continually towards that type of mentality. So look at the church today. Yeah. Well, and if I can jump in here, I mean, I've had close friends of mine and even I worked in a summer camp in Europe a couple of years ago. And some of the guys I was working with, they, you know, asked me serious questions about my salvation because I didn't speak in tongues, you know, and it's, it is, it's like that putting that normative prescriptive experience that they had and making it just blanketed for everyone else. And so that's, it is kind of, it's kind of scary to be so grounded in something so shifty. And if you think back to like Parham's day, it all began, give or take, because they read one piece of scripture and didn't read the rest, right? They read an Acts where it happened and were like, gung-ho but they didn't read like places like first corinthians because if you read the stories they did not do anything out of first corinthians right and we're not here to talk about like cessationism and stuff but like if they had even if they had even balanced what they read they would not have gone that far. Mm-hmm. And so is this flawed theology, this incomplete. But see, you bring up a good point about cessationism because prior to probably the 1960s, in large respect, you were either part of the charismatic movement mm-hmm. or you were a, a, really a cessationist in the sense that you believe those sign gifts, uh, the apostle gifts had ceased. And now because of how much this has infiltrated in large respect, evangelical, the evangelical church, now there's no longer such a tight division or strong division between those two things. But I just want to say, look at the ways experiential theology has worked its way into the church uh, in different issues. Now think about how people, um, you know, how by and large counseling is done in the church today. 
And, and you see so many more labels today put on things being an emotional issue or a personality issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's come up so much in the church in the last, you know, five to 10 years with different personality tests and the Enneagram and all this. And so now things are much more attributed to a personality issue, to a psychological issue, to a, uh, really a psychological medical issue rather than a spiritual issue. Yeah. And so what has happened is that the church has tended towards this type of experiential theology that I don't believe it unless I feel it. Mm-hmm. And It's almost a, making an idol of emotions, too. This right. idea that, like, I mean, if I feel it, you know? And I, like, I remember um, the story about this guy that he went in for counseling because he was struggling because he was blowing up on his wife all the time, right, in anger and just having these angry outbursts. And then he went to a psychologist, and they, they were like, well, you have intermittent explosive disorder. And while maybe you do have something behind that that's making you tick a little bit more, at the end of the day, if you're getting angry with your wife, you're getting angry with your wife. That's a spiritual (laughs) problem, right? And you might need some fine tuning. You might have some issues underlying, but to instantly call it a psychological issue or an emotional issue or even is the, to do a disservice yeah. to your spiritual relationship mm-hmm. with or, the Lord. Exactly. Or even how the church today is, is, is dealing with depression mm-hmm. or like counseling mm-hmm. people with depression. You know, we've, we've made it such a psychological, mental personality thing that you look at scripture and you look at people like Elijah or Moses or David who, who struggled with depression in those instances, but you can trace in each one of those instances really back to sin in their life, a, a, yep. a, a, a way that they had sinned against God or they had failed to believe a truth about God that led them into that pit. And yeah. so I ask the question as we think about, you know, okay, experience has brought its way. This experiential type of bad theology has such infiltrated the church. It's 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 not, you know, isolated to the Pentecostal tradition. It is, it is jumped out of that mm-hmm. into uh, really... All it's become prominent in mainstream evangelical churches. So how do we guard against it? And 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 a verse that comes to mind, and I'd like you guys' thoughts on this, is Ephesians chapter four. Listen to what Paul says. This is what he says, beginning in verse fourteen. So that we may be no longer children, that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful seams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so as I look at that verse, I I say, what is Paul getting at in verses 14 and 15 there as we kind of have this discussion about experiential theology? Well, he's kind of returning to where we started with uh, that quote by Legan Duncan about the centrality of the word. Um, I love what he says when he says, speaking the truth. And so truth here is a central key aspect because we're supposed to be speaking the truth in love and then we will grow up. And what's the truth Paul's referring to there? Well, I believe the it's, truth of experience, believe it's the word no, of God, the, the objective God. word of God. You are truth and your word is truth, you know, the gospel of John. And so yeah. um, I believe he's talking about scriptural objective truth, which is God and his word. And I see it in verse 15. He's yeah. rooting it in Christ mm-hmm. where we, we build up in love we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so what we see is this type of really bad theology being worked itself through uh, the church at large in America. And so now we see um, different cultural mantras um, or, I mean, can you guys think about ways that, that this type of bad theology of, of, of following my emotions, my emotions are, are right, and I'm, I'm going to f- build my faith around how I feel. What, what comes to your mind as you think about it in present day? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, because it's so pervasive, we hear it from every angle, even outside of the church. I, I mentioned this before, I believe, but my least favorite phrase of all time that everybody knows is, you know, just follow your heart. And, you know, that is, you know, comes from Disney movies. It comes from... If Disney said um, it, it must be right. Yeah, and, you know, so it's, it is something that, you know, we just have to push back against so hard because like what Paul was saying in Ephesians 4, you know, we have to, we have to push back against 
you know, bowing to our emotions, our emotions as masters, you know, because that's when we get tossed to and fro. When we, when we base, you know, everything that we think and believe on something that we feel that changes so quickly and so often and, you know, in many different respects, that's, you know, it's, it's not okay. And like that verse in Jeremiah, you know, don't follow your heart if it's deceitful and desperately sick. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> well, the Bible actually describes the heart of man as just being like this evil, like, flesh-filled, wicked it's thing. And it's like, it's, no. the Bible never paints it in a solid light. So to say follow your heart is completely anti-biblical. I think of another one is if it feels right, it is right, you know? <sighs> and that flows from follow your heart. It's mm. this idea of like, you do what you want. It's okay. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times like I've counseled people and like, that's what they say. Well, this is what I'm going to do because it just feels, feels right. right. Or um, I don't want to be with my spouse anymore because um, it, it, out I'm, I'm going to follow my heart because I've fallen out of love. And it's just like, do you hear yourself? You know, like, yeah. like, <laughs> you know, do you hear what you're saying? You're right. basing everything on the way you feel in your emotions and you're probably going to feel differently in six months. That's why sometimes people get back together, right? It's this idea that their feelings change. And it's so easy though, because our emotions are so, I mean, you know, they're part of who we are and sometimes they can be so strong where that seems like everything you're feeling is the only truth you have. But, you know, it's just, it's not true. And it's not to knock anyone, you know, who has, you know, struggled with, you know, finding the truth in spite of their emotions because, you know, I find difficulty in that sometimes. But it's a very real struggle. Yeah, and I think a saying that is not really a saying, but I think Christians would identify this with this is that we're not taking away or or making light of um, how God's Spirit moves mm-hmm. in us and moves on our emotions as we maybe hear the preaching of God's Word or uh, the conviction of sin or uh, just understanding the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's that's not what we're talking about. But I think what can happen is Christians can truly experience that, mm-hmm. experience the peace of God, experience um, the joy of, of their salvation, that, that when they don't feel that every day, then they feel like they're missing something. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is they end up chasing a spiritual experience. And so when they don't feel it, then they feel like, well, I'm not right with God mm. or, or something's wrong with me. And, um, and so that can even work its way into, I think, our time with God during the yeah. day that we, that, 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 you know, we, we only read the Bible because we're looking for a verse that's going to touch us mm-hmm. or, or speak to us or, or yeah. hit on my emotions. I mean, you look at, just look at, and we don't have to get into names, but you look at Christian bookstores and largely the devotionals that are out there for people today, look at how subjective it is in terms of emotion. Mm-hmm. And, Majority of and, them. And so this is what you should feel today. This is what you... This is what God wants you to feel today. And and so what we can end up, you know, doing is we can elevate emotion so much mm-hmm. in our Christian experience that we forget that our faith is really a reason faith. It's a it's a thought through faith. It's a faith that's rooted in truth and it's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And so um and we can even become dependent on our emotions. It's yeah. like I talked to people before they're like, you know, this is what God wants me to do, and I believe it and I feel it. But then what they're saying is completely anti-biblical, and you're like, did you read your Bible, like, at all? Because, <laughs> like, right there in front of you, it says that that is wrong. And and so so as we kind of come down here to a close and we start wrapping things up here, um, we can conclude that emotions are God-given and can be an important indicator in our life of God working. However, They are not factual. They are not facts or always reliable. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, let's kind of bring home here how this relationship works. The fact that God gave us emotions, but also how he intends us to use them uh, specifically in worship and how it relates to forming my faith in some areas. This experiential, um, how do we use it correctly and how do we use our emotions properly? It's good. Who wants to take that? You want me yeah, to take that, or, uh, Morgan? I'll, I'll take a stab at it and then I'll pass it on over to you. Um, I just, I, I just keep thinking about David in the mm. Psalms, and and that is just whenever I come to issues of you know emotionalism or you know how are we, what are we really landing on as our truth? I, I just think about how what a real person he was. You know, mm-hmm. I mean he he went from the highs of being uh, this kid who defeated a giant 
with you know the with God's power and then um to this broken man who'd committed a terrible sin and just felt completely separated from God yet he and he even left us his diary entries for us in the form of the book of Psalms yeah. that way we can see like right. these feelings were so real they were so raw and yet every single time he did not let his despair or his joy or his you know his brokenness overcome him instead he ran back to the Lord and he said, okay, this is what I'm feeling, but what does that mean? You know, how do I reckon with what I know to be true about the Lord because of how he's proven himself, how he has told us who he is in his word? Because, you know, David had a record of prophets and, um, you know, and other people who came before him. And so he never sat in his emotions and was like, okay, I feel this way, so this must be who God is, you know? And, um, you know, I just, I have to do that in my life when I am really dealing with some hard stuff or even when I, you know, have had an experience and I'm missing that, I can I can look back and I say, wow, like that was an incredible experience with the Lord. And because he's given me that, I just want to pursue him more instead of another experience. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. I, I would say for me, I, I, I go back to realizing that God gave us emotions like he created us mm -hmm. in this way so so there is a joy uh, a delight when you when you experience the peace of God mm -hmm. and when 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 the Lord brings his comfort and you know so I'm so thankful for that and I and I think as a Christian um, I know that my emotions my feelings are 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 corrupt. The Bible says my heart's mm -hmm. deceitful about all things. And so I can look back at my life and think, you know, if I would have made a decision at, at different points based off of how I felt, man, I would have been in a world of hurt. And, uh, but, but to just to hold on to a really a higher plane, a solid foundation mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I go back to Psalm 1611 that says, um, God makes known to us the path of life in his presence is a fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Mm -hmm. And so if if I'm living the spirit-filled life, if I'm delighting in God, then then there is great emotion in that and great joy in that. And um and I think that's where we should, you know, rest and and realize that when I truly understand God for who he is and I have a right theology about God, a right perspective about God, then that should move within my heart this response of, of emotion and just joy. And, 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 and so what, but what ends up happening though, is that I think sometimes we, we, we see, we, we seek after the experience rather than seeking after God. And if you, if you seek after God, um, then, then, then that's where, um, we're in the right frame of mind. We're in the right mm -hmm. place. Um, really for our emotions to, to follow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Feelings are important, but not the foundation of worship. Yeah. Uh, the foundation of worship is God and his word. And so as I worship God out of faith, uh, I don't worship him just by sight or how I feel. It's faith in him and his word, the objective, not the subjectiveness of emotions. I like to think of God's word as like a filter through which I filter my emotions and what comes out on the other side. Great. It's like drinking bad water, right? You run mm. it through a filter and what comes out on the other side. Great. Let's, let's take it. Let's drink it. Let's, I think the same is true with emotions. If I can run it through God's word and it makes it through great. That's, that's awesome. Emotions are good, but God and his word is what is objective, not my subjective feelings. Thanks for listening with us today. If you liked what you heard or you found it encouraging, we'd invite you to rate and review us wherever you find your great podcasts. You can find us on Apple, Google, and a multitude of others. So go ahead and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Where We Land, Christ, Culture, and the Church. Listen, if there's anything you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, we'd love to hear from you. So send us your thoughts, questions, and feedback by sending us an email at podcast at catawbavalleybc.org. On our next episode, we'll be continuing our mini-series considering the informants of faith part two by looking at rationalism. We'll look forward to having you join us there next time.